Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If, we, oh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about uh, digital media production. Second hour is usually uh, something we want to spend a little bit more time on. We're excited to have Matthew Simigula uh, uh, here from Altion.io. This is a funny thing. We, we uh, uh, Bill talked about Altion. And then I was like, I don't know what that is. And then and then they saw that we had talked about them and they said, well, would you like to talk more? I was like, yeah, sure. That'd be great. So they're on. They're going to be here for the second hour. I'm really excited to learn more about what they do. Um, so uh, and Bill's going to actually run that second hour while while um, while we all learn there. Um, so so stay tuned for that. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Dave, what do we have? Our first one is from Michael Marsh in San Anselmo. Given the recent advances in AI, how does CAPTCHA still work? Can't AI identify bicycles and check I am not a robot? I'll go with Jonas. Here's the funny thing. AI can because we all are helping with the data set. If you look at it, um, a lot of the chapter is used to train AI. Um, so like it's very really obvious <laughs> to us. Okay. Have a wonderful day. Drive safe and I'll um, see you uh, at one o'clock. Okay. Uh, you're not muted. You're not muted, Chris. Chris. Well, um, you are now. And the other thing is with JetGPT4, an interesting thing that they have there is this um, compliance group that uh, does tests with uh, AI. And they did this little experiment where JetGPT uh, should explain its reasoning while responding to everything. And they gave it the task to solve a chapter. And what it did is it went to Fiverr and found someone to solve the chapter for it. But then uh, the person jokingly asked the AI, are you a robot? Because you can't solve these. And it made up a story about uh, being blind or vision impaired and needing to help get help solving the chapter that way. Um, yeah, it is really interesting. What was really interesting is it explained, like it understood that if it says it's a robot, it is not like that's the right thing to say, but it decided it's the better thing to say, no, I'm not a robot. So yeah, they can solve it. I, I yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of things <laughs> that, that we think that we were we were trying to, uh, you know, we th didn't think robots could do. I think a, a lot of what we're seeing right now is that ChatGPT is just changing the way we think about how we interact with um, computers. I think a lot of people are afraid of that, but I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting opportunities. Let's jump into the next question. The next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. While streaming to LinkedIn through the API yesterday, LinkedIn started a new event rather associate the live stream with the pre-configured event chosen with the API. Any idea why this might have happened? We used Restream.io with the LinkedIn API. The, you know, we haven't used, a lot of us haven't used LinkedIn that much for the live streaming because it's, I, I know when it first came out, it wasn't something you could put, you could connect to a brand. So a lot of us got excited about it and then we're like, oh, we got to stream to our own, um, uh, our own, you know, uh, page. And so that, that kind of made it harder for us. So a lot of us haven't played with it as much. Go ahead, Jonas. Yeah, one interesting thing with uh, LinkedIn is there is, I think, a two-hour-ish window that you get an RTMP key for your event. So one interesting problem that we run into is you can't actually schedule an event too far in advance because the RTMP ingest point will have changed till you start your event. And back when we started using it, there wasn't a way to change it. So that might have been one of the things that you run into that it just couldn't access the RTMP URL for that event again and then created a new one. Um, 
we always use uh, it directly into LinkedIn. You should be fairly certain to uh, get in there now. But yeah, that's one of the issues we found with LinkedIn. Next question. Roscoe Jones is up next from Madison, Indiana. Roscoe says, from Mac Resolve, I gave a student some .mov files on a flash drive, but they have a PC and said they were unable to access them from the flash drive or Dropbox. I tried formatting the flash drive to XFAT. What would you recommend to fix the issue? Go ahead, Jonas. I'm thinking it probably is an issue with the underlying file and not the file system. So um, saying that it's an MOV file means like that's a wrapper, but we don't know the codec. And especially with Resolve, if you have a Mac version, it could be ProRes in a, a MOV wrapper, which Resolve on the PC doesn't support. So I'm guessing that the student might mean I can't open it as in if you drag the file into Resolve, it just doesn't display it. It doesn't even import it. And then there's also the possibility if it's an H.265 10-bit file, um, the free version of Resolve doesn't support it while the studio version, the paid one, does. So that's one of the things um, where we have seen differences. For example, from uh, a GH5, the 10-bit files can only be read by the pro version of uh, Resolve, not by the free version. So that other two things I would check. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, he covered the codec uh, codec issues pretty well. But if you put the thumb drive in and it says, "Do you want to format this?" Uh, then it can't read the uh, disk the formatting on the drive itself, which means it it may be a PC that's older than ten years or so, which doesn't know about EXFAT. If you can format it FAT32, that's the universally exchangeable format because Macs and PCs all read FAT32, and older PCs back you know, 10 or 15 years ago, we'll read FAT32. So that might be the way, but you only have, you can only use two gigabytes of storage, even if it's a 16 gigabyte uh, thumb drive. So <clears throat> be careful on, uh, you can't read any, have any files larger than two gigabytes on FAT32. The other possibility is to format it in TFS, which Macs can read but can't write, but most PCs can read in TFS on the last 10 years or so. So Try reformatting the thumb drive to either one of those, either FAT32 or NTFS, and see if they can read it. If they can't see any of the files at all, if they don't show up as MOV files, they just can't open them. But most modern PCs can open MOV files, but they don't necessarily have the ProRes codecs. Go ahead, Sky. I've, at once upon a time, changed the .mov to .mp4. And potentially that could allow your, your Windows machine to go, oh, I know how to read those, but that's that's an option there too. Next question. Next question comes to us from Noah Sargent in Fullerton, California. I'm searching for a 27-inch monitor that is thin. I'm looking to add it to a low-profile drawer slide so that the monitor folds out. Aiming for one inch thick or less, any suggestions? Yeah, some of the thinnest ones that I've seen are made by Asus and LG, so you can look at those. The problem is, is that most of the thin ones will not have a Visa mount, and uh, I don't buy I don't buy a lot of monitors without visa mounts. <laughs> so so the visa mount is a hundred millimeter visa mount on the back. To me, is kind of one of the things that a monitor has to have, and that's mostly because I attach my monitors to everything. I don't even know where the, most of the legs are for most of my monitors. Uh, I just don't even think about using them. So uh, visa mount uh, C13 and an HDMI are kind of my minimum requirements, and because of that, the the uh, monitors get a little thicker. So I know that you're trying to fit them into a 1U. You may have to go to a 2U. I do know that the 27-inch Dells would fit into a into 2U slot instead of a 1U slot. Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael's up next. With the U.S. political winds rapidly turning against TikTok, what short-form video content platform will probably take its place if TikTok ends up banned? Go ahead, Jonas. I think YouTube Shorts has a pretty strong case right now, especially with the revenue share model. I think they have some uh, better communication to do in like explaining how the revenue share model works. But I think YouTube positions themselves great for like a need for a new uh, short form platform. And I think they're on par with almost on par with TikTok. Now, the one thing that TikTok has that YouTube isn't there yet is like the whole editing and all the teens knowing how to use it and all the little TikTok magic tricks. They don't have those yet. Yeah. It, it, from the TikTokers that we've worked with in the past, they, there's a certain level where they, you know, they, they are using the native app until it seems like until they get to about a million users and then they move over to other apps. <laughs> so, and, and so, uh, so they, they start using a variety of different apps um, once they get into there because now to them it means more. So, but a lot of people do use the native app at the beginning. I do think that YouTube is probably the, the heir apparent if TikTok gets closed down. I think that the other thing that they're really missing is the viral nature of sharing. So in TikTok, there is this whole culture of I'm going to use your video for my video and, and YouTube is much more of a my video is my video and your video is your video. And so there's less like riffing off of other people's videos. And that is such a huge culture in TikTok. Uh, and I think that that's the one thing when you go to, uh, because we're getting ready for NAB, I'm really watching a lot of YouTube shorts to try to like f get a sense of those. And that's what I really feel like they're, they're not as, um, they're just not as fun. You know, I think that that's the that's the real challenge there. But but I will say that the quality is really there. The you know most of the other things are there. So I think that if TikTok gets turned gets shut down, I think you're going to see all those TikTokers, you know, go over to Shorts and and start to go. And I think it'll be it'll really change Shorts because it'll be like you know you had a a great you know with Shorts right now it feels like you have a great college team and then suddenly all these pro teams all just show up and start playing. So I think that for YouTubers, it'll be a little bit of an eye opener. If, if all the TikTokers, the big TikTokers start moving to YouTube, um, the, the quality will go way up, but it'll be hard for the YouTubers to to stay quite, I think, um, as competitive because the TikTokers are so good at what they do. Um, yeah, go ahead, Chris. I, I, first of all, sorry about my mic earlier. Uh, I think uh, Instagram shorts or stories or whatever the heck they call them, I, I think that's much more likely to to replace TikTok than YouTube shorts. I, 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 I think that I think the, the thing that fascinates me most about the Instagrams is that um, is the discovery button or whatever they call it, the find thing. The way that it keeps track of what you've looked at and continues to show you the things that you've bought off on. And the fact that any one of the things that you click on there will take you on another journey. It's it's almost like going into a whole nother Instagram. It's like, oh, now, now everything is derived on this impression that I've taken, that I gave it at some point. So like, you know, I might be scrolling. I was like, oh, here's a here's a Milwaukee toolbox. And I click on that and all of a sudden I'm in Milwaukee toolbox land and everything is about Milwaukee toolboxes. It's, it's, I think it's truly amazing. I get it. That everybody's doing something like it, but um, I think that's the algorithm that you want to grab, copy and implement for like a trade show. Yeah. Like there should be an Instagram instance builder something for every trade show you go to and people pay big money to get in there. And then once you click on that, once I click on one camera, it's like, wow, look at all this cool camera gear now. 
I, I think that for me, I'm mostly looking at my, my, I, my only sense of what's cool and not cool is my kids, you know? So I have a 14 or 15 year old and, and looking at like that, what they watch. And, I'm pretty cool. <laughs> uh, they don't use Facebook or Instagram and, uh, their, their friends use snap and YouTube. You know, those are the two big things that they're, that they're on and, and they don't, my, my kids aren't on snap cause I won't let them, but anyway, but the, um, well, they're not even that interested. They're not going to really care, but, but the, um, but their, their, their whole world is wrapped around shorts and long form in, in YouTube and they don't, they don't pay any attention to Facebook or Instagram anymore. It's just, it's a really interesting, interesting phenomenon. Uh, go ahead, Jonas. I think it's also going to be interesting how TikTok are, are going to manage the shift if there's going to be a shift and if that's going to help them build uh, communities. One of the things that I hear all the time is there are these huge TikTokers, but they really haven't built a community yet on short form content. And that's really, really hard right now to build the community on short content where they then go to the longer form YouTube, a series, a podcast. So I think that's going to be really interesting um, especially with YouTube having the clipping tool where we could say, hey, let's clip out a question per office hours and upload that as a shot. Um, I think that's where it could really accelerate and also like just help them get a better community and grow those communities better. Yeah, I think that almost everybody I know, including myself, where that we've been really successful is to use whatever you, whatever platform you're on to build that community somewhere else. <laughs> so, so you, you know, you're constantly, you, you give people a reason and you'll see the, you know, a lot of the YouTubers are using, um, they're using either Patreon or they're using, uh, a lot of them are using building their own discords. And these discords are massive. Like I'm on a bunch of these servers and these, the, some of these discord servers are just massive. And they're, that means that they're building up that following and they're getting them out there and they're building that relationship outside of the platform. It's hard for the platform. And I don't know how those platforms really can do that effectively, you know, like to, to do the video part and the community part. It's, it's an interesting puzzle. Next question. Next question comes to us from Michael Marsh in San Anselmo. How do you get a headphone output from MacBook Pro to desktop speakers without a noisy signal? Wired headphones sound uh, fine. I go with Courtney. Well, it depends, really, without knowing what your desktop speakers are. It's hard to answer that. If there's just speakers and they're not amplified speakers, if they don't have their built-in amplifiers in them, um, then you're taking an output that was really designed just to drive headphones to drive speakers. So you're going to have to crank up the amplifier in the Mac, and it may you may hear a lot of system noise that way. Uh, get amplified speakers and plug them into the headphone output on the Mac and turn the volume down on the Mac so that you're not overdriving the speakers. And if that is the what you're causing a noisy signal, it could be that you're hitting, if you have amplified speakers and you're hitting them with too much signal, it can be distorted if that's what you're talking about, noisy signal. Uh, in that case, turn the output of your Mac down on the software side uh, and then turn the gain up on the, uh, on the amplified speaker uh, a little bit. If you're overdriving them and hearing distortion, that would be your problem. It's just a manage of, uh, problem of gain staging so that you're not overdriving and you're not underdriving the input impedance into your amplified speakers. And if they're just speakers, get regular ampli get amplified speakers and you'll have less of a problem. And if it's the output of the Mac that's a problem, there's also, you can go with something like this, which is Sabrant, which is a separate USB uh, D to A converter and it will give you a, a uh, the green one is a line out or a headphone out and the red one is a microphone in. So that gives you uh, another chance at getting less noisy signal out uh, if it happens to be the amplifier built into your MacBook Pro.
Yeah, if if you uh, if if it's really built as as computer desktop speakers, it should sound fine when you go into the headphones. So that shouldn't be really a problem. If you're trying to put them into bigger speakers or nicer speakers, uh, everything that Courtney just said is probably spot on there. The one thing that I would say is that when I go uh, out to anything that's got XLRs or anything that's more than just the really a desktop set of speakers, uh, I'm going to go out of some kind of interface. So it's a USB to XLR interface. What I don't want is any uh, any any kind of um, ba unbalanced uh, connections. So I don't use, friends don't let friends use unbalanced connections out of their computer. <laughs> so not even for six inches. Like, not, like I don't, no unbalanced, no unbalanced. <laughs> so, so that's where you get all your noise. I, I, I can't tell you how many events I've been in and I can hear a buzz somewhere on a speaker and I just go down the path and find the person with, you know, some playback pro or something else. And I just pull their, pull their headphone, pull the, the little pod, pod thing that they have in there. I just pull it out and the buzz goes away. <laughs> you know, so it's, so if you're hearing a buzz, that's a, that's a ground loop or some kind of uh, pickup and it's picking up, it's because you have an unbalanced connection. So if it's a, if it's noisy and distorted, it's what Courtney said, if it's buzzy, then it means that you have an unbalanced connection that's picking up power around it. And go ahead, uh, Chris. It, it could also just be a bad cable. Could be. Um, also, I will say, I have uh, for several years, and they still sell them, it looks like, for several years, I give you a, a, a recommendation. I highly recommend the Bose Companion 20 desktop speakers. They, they're driven off your headphone jack. They come with this little puck. You put the puck next to your keyboard, and it's a volume control. Whoop, whoop, whoop. You tap it, it mutes, and there's a place to plug in your headphones there. It, it mirrors it so that you don't have to reach back behind the computer to plug in the headphone jack. I have a couple pairs of them. I carry a pair with me in my road kit when I used to travel for work. Uh, the Bose Companion 20. Really cool little set of speakers. Go, Jonas. One thing to also keep in mind, it took me a while to figure out when I first set up my mix pre is a Thunderbolt carries enough voltage that that is, could also be considered a power cable. So make sure if you have like Thunderbolt and I had a Thunderbolt into my mix pre and then like the headphone over that and suddenly there's a bus. Um, so keep that in mind. Absolutely. Next question. Next one comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. When testing a mic for Zoom, what are your procedures and parameters? Thanks. I mean, I think one of the most important things is get somebody on the other side. <laughs> so, so when you're testing the mic for Zoom, they have a little tester in there. The tester is horrible in, inside of Zoom. So uh, I played with it a couple of times. It is so, the quality of the tester is so low and so compressed that it's not worth even opening up. So you really need to talk to someone who knows what they're listening to on the other side to tell you, does it sound good? Not everyone's going to have a meter um, like we have here in the show. Um, so that may not be the, that might not be the viable way to do it, but, but you should talk to someone in the inside of office hours. The best way to do it is if you are doing it is jump into after hours and ask people to listen to your mic and uh, let, let them know if it's uh, if it's working well or not. Uh, next question. Next one comes from James Fossling in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And James says, when an iPad gets corrupted, is there any recommendations to make sure you rebuild with all the same apps minus the corruption? Uh, go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, when mine uh, changes, when I change iPad, I tend to use the iCloud backup. I found that actually a very accurate way to get things back where I started. You just need to make sure you get the version that isn't corrupted when you back it up, when you recover. 
so I have to admit, I mean, I, I definitely, the only thing that I have on my iPad that I really care about are my notes or my photos, but those are all somewhere else in iCloud. Uh, because I bought all those apps, um, anytime I have a problem with pretty much anything, but definitely with my iPad, because they're all those apps are sitting there, uh, I don't try to back or move or port anything. I grind it all the way down. I start over again and I just start installing the apps. In fact, I just start installing apps as I need them. So uh, I've bought so many apps, so I put them on all my machines, uh, they would just fill up pages. I mean, I can fill 10 pages of apps. So what I do is I go, oh, where's that app? And then I download it. Where's that app? And I download it. And, and so I, that keeps my, my iOS devices relatively clean um, by not having them just sitting there just because they were there before. Um, next question. Michael uh, Marsh in San Anselmo's up next. I'm looking for an app that will automate the stitching of many small maps into a single large one. Any recommendations? Go ahead, Courtney. I thought I know of one, but I did find one. Uh, I, Google used to have something that would stitch together photographs. You have to have overlapping photographs. If your maps are individual maps that don't overlap, if you're if the images of these maps don't overlap, you might have a problem. I did find an app uh, called uh, Map Stitch Image Stitcher on uh, Google Play. So there is an app available on the Google Play Store uh, for Map Stitch Image Stitcher. Look at that. Maybe it'll do what you're looking for. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't found a lot of automatic ways to do this. Um, so it, I, I imagine this is another one of those things we talk a lot about AI, that AI will eventually be able to look at and figure this out pretty quickly. But right now, I would probably end up taking it into Photoshop and mapping them. And I don't know how many small maps you have. One tangential tip is if you're actually trying to map something, a large area with that's photographic, um, and, you, and you have access to a drone, and uh, uh, take a look at the 14-day uh, free trial of Drone Deploy. You can literally just set it up of a Google Map area. Like, I just want to map this entire area. And you hit go, and the drone just takes off. The, D, the DJI ones are the ones that work the best, but it'll just take off and just start building a grid. It'll just, you'll see it zipping back and forth as it builds that grid. It'll even come and land, let you change the battery, and let you put it back up again and let it do its thing. I've mapped a lot of with, with that. So if you're looking at mapping something with a drone, that might be something that's really interesting. Otherwise, if you're just taking image-based maps, you're probably going to, I don't know, possibly Courtney's solution uh, or by hand. Next question. Next one comes to us from Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. Any iPhone, iPad apps that can utilize a 360 cam in a Zoom-like conference, bi-directional conversation as needed, use case a realtor showing a home to a client. So you can uh, stream. I don't know if you can do it. I don't know if you'd be able to do it quite that way, but you can stream out from a Theta. So the little Theta that is about this big, uh, it has, uh, you can plug in a USB on the bottom and you can actually stream from there. There's also, there's a couple different, uh, um, a couple different companies that make a variety of different um, versions of these, but the Theta is the smallest and easiest one to use. Yeah, Bill's showing one right there. So that's the Theta. It, it has, um, uh, it has the two lenses. It will get rid of its own seam pretty well. Um, you can take a lot of pictures. I take lots of pictures with that. Um, and, uh, and so when I'm doing a, a scene a site survey, I do that. Um, and then um, you can use, uh, then you can stream that out. And then you have to find a player. There's you, What you want to search for is a 360 player that you could insert somewhere into it. I don't know of any that, I think you'd end up with Zoom if you wanted to show someone something. You'd end up in Zoom with them talking, but you'd be looking at the live stream from the uh, from that from that piece. We've done bigger versions of this with 
ozos. <laughs> three three ozos work really well as a as a real estate um, thing, but those are they're not that expensive now. That when I bought them, they were sixty grand. I think you can get them on eBay for now, like two thousand dollars. But I don't know if you if the processing's around anywhere. Go ahead, Jonas. You could take, um, I think the Insta 360s allow you to stitch it down to a one 1080 frame. And what you then could do is you take the 1080 frame, there's some web frameworks, you use the Zoom video SDK to get the full frame. And then you put that into a globe renderer. So you wrap it around the camera again, and then you have a 360 camera that you can move. That way you could do it, but that would be quite some development involved with that. And the quality wouldn't be as good as just having someone physically move the camera on location because um, you would be bound to the 1080p for all 360 degrees. And the uh, and I will say that um, there's a whole section in Insta360 about real estate. So if you do uh, Insta360 Enterprise Industries Real Estate, you'll find it there. So uh, definitely check out what they're doing. I think that one of the things I would think about also is uh, you may find it easier to manage if you, uh, I don't know if the 360, because the quality of the 360 to get enough resolution might be hard for real estate. You may be better off with a Matterport and you know have get the mapping of the entire piece. So someone looks through it through 360, but when they actually want to ask questions, I think that they might actually be better off with just a regular handheld camera where they're walking around. Now, maybe the, now it might be something that like you're using a GoPro or something that is, that the real estate person can sit there and kind of do a, uh, a Tom Scott kind of approach of kind of pulling things around and, and showing them stuff. But I think that that might be better. It's just hard because it's hard to get close to something like, oh, I want to look at the stove and getting up close to the stove is going to be hard with a 360. You'll never get close enough to it where you, if you had a regular camera, you could do that. You still want the 360 so they can walk around in it and that's where something like a matterport is the easiest way to to do those things um, and throw them together but that's just something to consider uh, next question next one comes back from andy kokendorfer from vr florida again what is the psychological argument for widescreen aspect ratios why is 2.35 uh, to 1 so appealing go ahead sky i'm gonna let courtney handle the, the aspect ratio of the 2.35 uh, i just know that the concept of imax was to engulf you in the experience. They're trying to get you out to your peripheral vision was, I believe, the goal of uh, the, the person that was creating the IMAX experience. And I know here in Seattle, we are very fortunate to have the Cinerama. And there's also one there again in Hollywood, the Cinerama Dome, which originally used three projectors to create that that you know full wide perspective of taking you, engulfing you in the experience. But it was very expensive because you had to film with three cameras and then you had to project with three cameras, which while a very cool thing when it was created became very expensive very quickly. So um, that's the psychological concept of is since you're being entertained is taking you into the experience. Now, the specific aspect ratio, that's where Courtney's the, the engineer in technology. Good, Courtney. Well, I think 235 came about with uh, Todd AO or Cinemascope. Uh, which used is uh, used uh, anamorphic lenses to spread the image that was squeezed when it was photographed on standard uh, 35 millimeter and 65 millimeter film uh, to a wider aspect ratio to as 
sky said to fill your peripheral vision and if it if it wraps around and it fills your peripheral vision left and right it puts you more into the scene and you you suspend disbelief that you're sitting in a theater watching a movie and you think you're actually there that's the psychological reasoning behind it IMAX is more of a square format actually uh originally it's just a huge screen with a lot of resolution to fill your peripheral vision not only horizontally but vertically as well uh, but um, uh, 235 to 1 is still used in a lot of uh, theatrical features these days, uh, although there's a trend to go back to 185, which was the standard standard the- theatrical distribution uh, aspect ratio for many, many years. So uh, that's, that's about all I know on aspect ratios. Wider is better. Go ahead, Sky. To give you the full experience, uh, Smell-O-Vision was tried. But it, uh, they couldn't vacate the, the smell between uh, events that were, you were being seen on, on screen. And in high school, I was a projectionist, and that was the manager's job was to tell me to open the popcorn so that the vent of the popcorn would go in because that's where the theater made the money. Yeah, the, the, the other problem now that they have is that there's so much of the content being created for the television, not for a giant screen. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about going back to 16 by 9, even though it's a very square format uh, compared to the other ones, mostly because uh, people keep on saying, why is, why is the top and bottom cut off? <laughs> so, so, like, you know, so there, there's kind of this pushback from the user of if you're going to produce something for streaming, I just want it to fill my – people feel like they want to fill their whole screen. And so I think that there's, a, there's been more and more pushback that we've seen. Um, I know that when we do events, uh, people do these really wide ones for an event for hybrids and so on and so forth. And we push back pretty hard going, well, you know, most of your viewers are watching this in 16 by 9. <laughs> so so you just, just think about, you know, whether you really want to put that big, big wide screen there because it's it just means that you're going to have to build two versions of it. And that doubles the price oftentimes or not doubles it, but increases it by 50%. So just, you know, it's just cost. And then usually that usually starts to, that's been slowly pushing down on the the super wide screens that we've seen in LED walls uh, over the past decade. Uh, go ahead, Jonas. I also find it interesting with the age of a lot of mobile phones, a lot of people changed away from 16 by 9. It's like, six, what is it, 16 by 10 that most phones now have. So a lot of the VOD content on YouTube now actually isn't 16 by 9 anymore, which on the PC is crazy when you do full screen and now you have black bars again but on your phone it's great and the youtube app now allows you to zoom in exactly so all your f- screen is filled which i find really interesting because now we're back to like hey let's keep some safe space at the top at the bottom because phone users will be zoomed in um, it's quite the interesting like flow of like let's go wide let's go small again let's do this yeah. and yeah and then to make it more complicated, you know, for a while people were like, well, how do we do movies in 360, you know, and how do we, how are we doing immersive movies? But as these, one of the things that a lot of people found is that generating content at 180 degrees, not 360, but 180 degrees is really cool. So there's a lot of people that are talking about shooting films, not immersive, like choose your own adventure, but just the film is what you see in front of you is 180 degrees, uh, which is, so that's a, which is a whole fascinating thing in itself. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and there was a big discussion when they went to high-def television when they were establishing the formats for high-def. They settled on 16 by 9, which is 1.77777777 to 1. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it was a compromise between the theatrical 185 
and the 4x3, uh, right. which standard deaf television was. So that's why you ended up with uh, you know, letterboxing on widescreen and letterboxing and pillar boxing on standard deaf to high, high def. So you're going to end up with black bars either way. And that's why 16 by 9 became the the sun, I guess. I was going to say bastard sun, but yeah. keeping it clean. Yep, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> you said it anyway. <laughs> go ahead, Chris. <laughs> and yet you said it anyway. Andy, I think the short answer to your uh, question about why widescreen is, is more, um, would you say, a psychological argument for widescreen aspect ratios because our eyes are next to each other and not on top of each other. That, that, that's what I would say. Oh, that'd be interesting if they're on top of each other. That would be a very odd mm. pair of sunglasses. It'd be hard. The ears wouldn't work. Next question. And the frames would close your mouth. Hmm. Um, you wonder why we are so uh, obsessed sometimes on office hours and depth of field. This next question will bring some of it to light. Douglas Carmichael asks, Alex, what is that flashing device to the left of the QL1? <laughs> It's driving him crazy. <laughs> uh, I, I believe that's the Dante router. I mean, that just that's just the router that happens to be managing all the Dante stuff that goes on within the office. So I think I believe that's the router that that's what that router does. But yeah, a lot more in focus today than usual because we're just I'm using a little Insta 360. Um, by the way, something that was pointed out last night is that there is a reason that that Obspot might be more interesting to a bunch of us than the Insta360. So I, I I would like to make that correction today. Um, the Obspot. Uh, um, is uh, uh, addressable via, via OSC. Oh, really? Zoom OSC can yeah. can see it. Ooh, someone someone's name who rhymes with uh, Andy Carluccio read read <laughs> into the uh, um, read into uh, the deeper documents, and uh, the Obspot is uh, is is addressable by OSC. So a lot of us are going to look at it, and then I think we I think we're going to do one of our first like mass emails to Insta360 going, hey, we're trying to make a decision between the OBSBOT and your thing and it's addressable by OSC and yours isn't. What's up? <laughs> How you doing? And isn't the oh. sensor of the OBSBOT also larger? Like the OBSBOT Tiny 2? Yeah, it's larger. I think the problem is, is to me it's larger, but it doesn't mean anything because it's wider angle. Like the, the, the for me, the downside yeah. of the OBSBOT, why I completely, read it, I completely just wrote it off because I was like, it's too wide angle. Like, like I'm gonna have to zoom in. So anything that they added to the to the sensor doesn't benefit me at all. But now the OSC stuff, whew, that's gonna that makes it hard. I'm gonna have to buy at least one of them just to see what's going on. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. For those who are interested, I am compiling a list of all the names from Discord that do rhyme with Andy Carluccio. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, anyway, so the um, so a lot, a lot of fun there. Uh, uh, by the way, if you want to ask questions, you of course you can ask questions uh, for the first hour. Also, uh, take a look at Altion's website um, and uh, see if you have questions for the second hour. You can go ahead and throw those in any time. Uh, and uh, but first hour uh, still still room for questions, so you can ask those questions now. Also, vote on the questions. Uh, the voting that you have on the questions uh, really defines where they end up in that stack. And so it's really, your votes do matter. Um, so uh, definitely check that. Do check out Mukana and check out those votes and throw some questions in if you have them. All right, let's go to the next question. Rob Harris in St. Paul, Minnesota says, I get volume out of my Heil PR40. I just get volume out of my Heil PR40. I have to be speaking loudly just an inch or two right into the diaphragm. For input, I've tried a Blue Icicle, a Behringer Interface, and most recently a Mackie Big Knob Studio. I need more than negative 30 dB. 
Go ahead, John. Yeah, just as a frame of reference, I've got the high PR40, and I've tried all of the Scarlet stuff. I uh, used to have the two or three different Scarlets. They barely, barely drive. And now I have a Claret, and the the gain is all the way up. I have PR40 on my Mix Pre 10, and my volume is just over 12 o'clock, about 1 o'clock. So you need good preamp. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, exactly. A good preamp that can handle maybe 65 to 70 dB of, of gain to use those dynamic microphones. Otherwise, uh, you're not going to get enough. You're going to run out of gain. The uh, Mix Pre's, of course, have enough, and the Rodecaster Pro, which I am speaking on, is claimed to have enough clean uh, amplitude to handle a high LPR 40. Okay, so you could look at those two uh, if you're looking to spend seven to eight hundred bucks for a mixer that solves your problem. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I was using a cloud lifter on mine to try and get it up, and it was, I think, just inducing too much noise into the system. And when I put it straight into the Mix Pre 3, uh, I was able to get to the right level. I think the Zoom, don't some of the Zoom ones have enough uh, gain to, to make that work? So this, so if you're looking for something a little less expensive, the Zoom ones are a, a possibility as far as uh, what they have there. I do think that the Cloudlifter, again, that's not something that I would recommend ever putting into a pipeline on by choice. A lot of us carry the Cloudlifters around in our backpacks so that when in a pinch we put them in, but I would never build a system around them. I'm, I'm not even sure if the person who makes the cloud lifter or the company that makes the cloud lifter would suggest that. <laughs> Maybe they would, but that would be crazy. Um, you know, so uh, the cloud lifter is really good for as a pinch of like, I can't get to where I need to get to for the show, but I wouldn't build a pipeline around a cloud lifter. And so you definitely want to look for one that, as said before, was negative, negative or 60 to 70 dB of gain. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if you're looking at the Zooms, uh, go with the F series, not the H series. So like the F3, they came up with this F3, which is a 32-bit uh, interface as well. and takes XLR inputs. Uh, that might do it for you. It's said to have the better preamps in it uh, that the F series have. In it. So if you're going to go Zoom, that's a way to go. But the, mass, the, 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 the vast majority of us are using uh, mixed pre-3s is, is where a lot of us have gone. Uh, next question. Chris Fenwick on the panel from Emeryville, California says, has anyone been contacted by ComplianceSolutions.org about their software compliance? Adobe has some really egregious demands in their ULA that we have all agreed to. That's their user license, right? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I don't know. If, uh, first of all, uh, Alex, have you ever heard of this organization? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the main thing, that I've never been contacted by them, but we think about that a lot. Um, you know, so the main thing is, is that, and Adobe, I think, is one of the ones that works with compliance solutions. The bottom line is, is that for all the software that we've bought, there is a certain level of, you know, there's, you know, there's maybe it says you can install it on one computer or two computers. Uh, you're not really buying, and oftentimes you're not really buying the software. You're, you know, in some weird way, leasing. you're not buying it, you're leasing it. Yeah, yeah. You're leasing that software from them. And so you don't really own it. And so in a lot of ways you can't, what's interesting is as you dig into it, you're not really allowed to sell it. Like you can't really, cause you don't own it. You know, you know, you're bought, you bought this like permanent. Lease yeah. That's, that, that's so, not the issue. No, but, but so, so the bottom line is, is that a lot of times people have get a little loose in the past. They've gotten a little loose before subscriptions of installing it on a couple of computers and, you know, having it, you know, having one copy go into a lot of places. And uh, all of that has become, uh, you know, the, 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 what you put yourself at risk at when you own a company. And the reason that most companies don't have too much of a problem with this once they get going is because, or they, they don't, they, if they're smart, they don't have too much trouble is that 
one um, upset employee will call the compliance solutions and say, these guys are using a bunch of pirated software and then they come down and it's like $250,000 a unit. I mean, it's enough to drown somebody's company uh, to, you know, get caught. Now, usually what that, I've talked to people who have been called, again, I've never had the problem, but uh, that they say, I mean, you know, they come in and they go, eh, it could be 500,000 or a hundred million dollars of thing. And then they negotiate something down to, you know, money, like 10 grand, 20 grand. <laughs> like it's like not, not small number, not, not small potatoes, but, but they usually don't make you pay the whole amount, but they have a stick that is, like I think a quarter million dollars per infraction that was given to them by Congress. And so they, so that it's a lot of, there's a, uh, there's a lot of leverage there. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. I was wondering if this was like uh, ADA compliance so that uh, your, your screens interface can be handled by screen readers, et cetera. Maybe Hershid can tell us more about that. But I think this is really just a lawyer's serving lawyers service that uh, makes sure that there's, you can't be sued over some petty thing in your so, software. So what has happened – here's the problem. One, they send you these uh, uh, emails and they say, we're working for Adobe, but they offer no proof of that. So mm -hmm. they've taken a paragraph – they might be working for Adobe, but they haven't proven that to me. Mm -hmm. Then they take a paragraph out of the EULA, and the stuff that we have all agreed to, to use Adobe software, is really astonishing. It's like uh, – uh, if you're a business, uh, you uh, relinquish the right to be audited physically and electronically once every 12 months. Like they get to, Mr. Fenwick, Mr. Fenwick, we'd like to talk to you about your software. Um, and then, uh, let me see, what's the other thing here? You will provide us with all the records and information requested for us within 30 days of our request. And again, this organization contacts you with no proof that they're actually working for Adobe. They say they are. Yeah. I mean, maybe they are. I just think I would ignore all that. <laughs> like, you know, until I heard from, from Adobe, you know, like, like, and, and I would, you know, especially now we, most of us are on subscription. I mean, how do you, you can't really do anything that breaks the rules. You, you can't, although I read something in one of the, they claim again, uh, this organization, uh, was it what I say? It was the software compliance alliance or whatever it is. Here's a very interesting paragraph I just read. What is your understand? What is your understanding about? So Adobe says you can install this on two computers, correct? Yeah, but the intention is the same same user, two different computers. Ah, that's the so the, the that's the assumption is you're not putting it on two different computers and letting two different people use it. It's two and and again, there's a we always have to look at these. The, the EULAs are are really aggressive. If do, if Adobe actually did what they said that they could do in the EULA, the uh, the loss of users would be pretty intense. So, so there's a there is a law, there's a legal thing that they've had you agree to, but they couldn't enforce it without losing millions of people using. They'll lose me pretty quick. Yeah. So I mean, I, I again, I I don't think that I I think that there's a a lot of times you write <laughs> you want to write if you if you if you know that people are just going to click okay because they don't want to read all the words. You'll put a lot of things in there that give you a lot of latitude that's going to let you do whatever you want later if someone's really problematic. So if someone's doing something problematic, you give them no room. This is just how a lawyer works. Is you give, If you know that they're going to click through it, uh, you give them no loopholes. You just want to take out all the loopholes they could possibly have and that you know that they're going to click through it because they're not reading it. And that's how you get that. Now, it would be very crazy for Adobe to actually do most of those things because 
they would end up all over social media. And then, you know, they did it, you know, and so, so they, there's a, there's a limiter to what they can actually do regardless of what the law is. Um, but they're going to do all of that so that if they find someone who is, I mean, if they take someone to court over software, it's rarely over, you have one or two whatevers or whatever. And a lot of times um, people have just been asked to like, just buy the ones that you didn't buy, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and sometimes there's a little bit of extra, but a lot of times it's literally, we could charge you a million dollars, but we just need you to buy the ones that you didn't buy, you know, that kind of thing uh, and pay maybe a $5,000 fine or something like that. But, but the point is, is that, that that's all negotiable and they don't want to do that. But it's if someone says, well, I actually did this and this and this and this and this, and the EULA leaves no oxygen, um, you know, in there to, to argue about it. If someone is, is, is egregiously taking advantage of the software. So I don't think that, I think that they do it. I mean, I, again, growing up as a you know, family of lawyers, you put everything in you can, <laughs> and because you can put all the things you want in there because because no one's arguing. Um, so you you put all that stuff in, but they couldn't actually, in reality, do it because there's the physics of social media would push back too hard and it would be too damaging to the brand. So right. you just have to look at it like there's a there's a reality to it, and then you have these little you know monkey solutions that are calling you that you know the monkey software solutions that are calling you about it and. I would just ignore them. Just, just don't even bother. So, anyway. so one last question before we move on, just from a show of hands, and maybe we could put up the gallery view. The people here on the gallery uh, uh, panel, how many people are under the are uh, understand that the Adobe license agreement means that only one person can use the two installs that they allow? I mean, understand that. I understand that. So Alex, one, two, three, half of the I don't half. understand, but I don't have any Adobe software left on my system. Yeah, so yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, John. Uh Chris, you should just retire and build tall makers. No kidding. <laughs> I am so sick again, of this business. Again, again, it's 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 it just really isn't that. It, I, I, I don't think it's nearly as deep as it sounds, but yeah. Next question. Next question comes to us from Aaron Wilson in Lebanon, Tennessee. What is the best way to mic a trumpet? Also, what are your suggestions for microphones for both recording and live performance? It can be two different microphones. I go, it's Guy. I am not an audio engineer, but I know one, and I've sat next to Jeff Francis on this very panel before. So I, if you're available to uh, on our Discord in this community, Jeff Francis does this for a living and has done it for many years and is brilliant at this question. I've also put a link in the chat from, um, uh, not Stillwater, Sweetwater. Ask, answering this very question because and giving you all of your different options, but I know that makes means you have to read it and and uh, make choices and decisions. And Jeff's a lot more fun to do that. Good, Bill. I remember um, seeing trumpets, and most of the ones in the early days, at least, were were mic'd pretty much with those crown large diaphragm uh, connected microphones. The same one that Garth Brooks used to sing into. I would imagine there are better solutions now that we've had many years. And I agree that if you come on the audio days when people like Jeff are here, they'll give you the, the modern solutions for this. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the Mickey answers, it depends. Because a trumpet, and I used to play the trumpet, is a very directional instrument. The sound comes out of the narrow bell and goes directly out from that. And so if you're off axis from the bell, you're going to have problems. That's why a lot of uh, trollo, uh, trumpet, trollo, trumpet soloists uh, have a thing that, that actually clips a small microphone onto the bell and holds the microphone out in front as long as they're not using a mute uh, to mic the sound. That way they can get really creative in pointing the 
pointing the trumpet in a certain direction. So whenever you're miking a trumpet, regardless of the microphone that you use, uh, bear in mind that the technique that the trumpeters are using, if it's a whole uh, row of trumpeters, you know, you need to put a mic in front of them and have them all point toward the mic. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get uh, a little bit of Doppler shift as they move back and forth and uh, strange artifacts. That's why they use clip-on mics sometimes for trumpets if they're moving around. Oops, you're muted, Alex. And Mickey performs ribbon. Mick, Mickey prefers ribbons. Uh, next question. Joe Andrews in Lebanon, Oregon says, what would be a good microphone to get crowd noise and to the appropriate level for a stream being deployed in a swimming pool venue during large events? Ooh, Ooh that's a toughie. <laughs> Um, you know, a lot of times we've used a variety of shotgun mics as well as labs. I mean, we've actually taken labs and just dropped them out there and and gotten some relatively good noise, uh, good uh, crowd noise out of them. Um, and placed usually somewhere. Usually, what we're trying to find is a is a sign or a return monitor or something that we have there that we can grab those. Getting into the crowd a little bit makes it a little easier not to get so much uh, pickup. You have to you have to be careful of you know what where that crowd noise is going. It's only going to the stream and not back into the speakers. Um, but uh, but we've used both shotgun as well as um, as far as la shotgun from where our positions are so that we don't have to put them into the, in the audience. But we have found that labs work pretty well as well. Go, Bill. That's one of those areas where I might be playful and try a parabolic reflector with a little cardioid inside of it. At least you can turn it in directions like I, toward the crowd or toward the pool. The water noise, I would imagine, is crazy there. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with the parabolics, of course, you pick up three people instead of like what we're trying to usually do is when we put those mics out there we want to grab everybody as or as many people as we can to kind of grab the scene uh, next question paul terry wallace austin texas up next are c panel and whm the best way to manage websites go ahead jonas i think if you need a management interface like that you probably should rely on someone else managing your web server or if you there kind of was just like huge growth of like everyone has their own Plask or C panel or VMS panel uh, server. But I can think explain, now- Can you explain to everybody what the C panel is? So C panel is a software that automate, that gives you a GUI interface for all the, um, for allowing multiple websites to be hosted on the same server. So you can have like the office hours and the after hours and like all those websites and subdomains on there. And then you can install plugins like WordPress. You can have a PHP server running, simple stuff like that. Um, behind the scenes, it probably uses a mixture between Nginx and Apache, which are servers and proxy servers. But if you don't know how to set them up and you just follow the tutorials, then you have to rely on cPanel or VMS panel to also protect you and secure you. If you want the best way, I would go with someone who knows what they're doing, who's experienced in managing and maintaining web servers, because you're constantly under attack. Like if you don't see attacks daily, you just already have been attacked. If I look at the logs of my web servers, there's like an attack every 30 seconds. And the question is just how fast can you respond to an attack that comes through? Because someday they will come through. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So if you go with a big provider or like one of the hosting providers, um, it's way more secure. And if you don't, and if you are experienced enough, you can also just set it up with the underlying frameworks yourself. Good, John. Uh, Jonas must have read my notes. <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, next question. 
comes to us from Douglas Carmichael again. Telos is marketing a virtualized mix engine for the radio market. Are there any virtual mixers that could work for other audio applications? And he's got a link to this. I think there's a lot coming up. I mean, I th one of the things that happened uh, that uh, we, we saw this huge surge during COVID of not being able to do this and audio turned out to be this super painful part of the pipeline that hasn't been solved very well. Uh, a lot of people use Mixbus, which was something that Harrison uh, put out, uh, but we're also seeing a lot of other things starting to crop up. I know I've been pinged about, hey, are you going to NAB? We have a new virtual server. <laughs> we have a new virtual mixer. So uh, I think that we'll, there'll be five or six in the market by the end of this year. Go ahead, Jonas. Yeah, so uh, there's CloudMX, which is a cloud-based virtual server from Waves that we have used for evaluation um, it allows you to also bring in all the cloud uh, all the waves plugins then like alexx there's mix pass and then there's virtualized versions of different um, hardware software mixes um, lavo has a really interesting radio product uh, relay is what they call it um, that also is useful and we actually looked at that that is pretty neat interface um, but the one from Telos is pretty interesting because it integrates with all the existing system that Telos has. And uh, we have been looking at a lot of the Telos stuff in the cloud and they really seem to understand what they're doing there, which often is a problem with as old companies as audio companies mostly are, where they just can't keep up with like licensing needs for the cloud and are yeah, overwhelmed yeah, with that. We're probably going to spend a significant amount of time at the TELUS booth, the TELUS Alliance, because there's so many different things that they're doing that touch on what we do. So they have some comm solutions we haven't been able to get on the show yet. Uh, they have this solution. They have a lot of the linear acoustic stuff, the stuff I've used in the past uh, for a variety of processing. So, um, so I think that we're going to end up uh, uh, working with them to probably spend a little bit of time with the live view, uh, you know, wandering around the, at, at NAB. But I looking at virtual mixing consoles is definitely something we're going to focus on at NAB. So if anybody has those that they want us to look at, if you see the booths there, that's something that we are absolutely going to be focused on is finding every company that's doing something like that. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. And Henry's back with, has anyone experienced a less expensive, not sure, USB mic for six people around a small conference table to use in Meets and Zoom? The quality isn't crucial, just intelligible speech. I think that that last that 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 last uh, term though is 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 almost a contradiction in terms. Uh, you know, they have it intelligible. Uh, it's pretty hard to make it intelligible and not make it not worry about the quality. Uh, if you're looking for one USB mic, of course, there's lots of speakerphone mics that you could do. Another thing you want to look at is boundary mics for all six people. So you know, boundary mics can be something that that might work for you as well. Um, but, uh, you know, we really try to, have, it, unless the room is really treated, it's not so much the mics. A lot of mics will sound good if, if you have a room that's got soft walls. If they have a, if they're a typical lots of glass and whiteboards, it just sounds bad. <laughs> and, and you should definitely, whatever you're doing, you should listen to it on the other side. Uh, I spent three or four hours a day for a decade listening to conference calls with people with speakerphones in conferences room rooms and you spend half your time just trying to figure out what people said go ahead bill alex is a hundred percent right in this i've had exactly the same experience we used to use pzm pressure zone modulated mics they're a flat thing that sits on the table but none of them have really high precision audio and even those telephone conference systems like the big uh 
winged ones that you see just don't do a particularly good, a great job because somebody might be eight feet away at one end of the table and someone else might be three feet away at the center of the table. And that inverse square principle is just going to make sure that no matter how much intelligence they put into it, one, it does not have the intelligibility of the other. Yep. Next question. Next one comes from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. What would your smallest good quality audio-only recording kit for field interviews be? Courtney just showed the Zoom F3. Would you use something like that with a mic and some in-ear monitors, or would you use something else? Go ahead, Nigel. So I use a, a Tascam. I think it's the DR40 or something. I found that range quite good. I'm not sure though it has an in-ear monitor on it. So, but uh, those products range have changed so much since I bought it. But I found the little Tascam was really great. I tend to record on a camera and then on that and then mix afterwards. Hey, Bill, real quick. Yeah, the Zoom stuff is also very good. It, it's a process of field recorders. If you really want the high end and to explore this, look at look at field audio recording. There are some fabulous things, but they're very expensive at the top end, and some of these consumer things work just fine. Yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, the thing to look for is the 32-bit float because that's an important uh, thing for field. You don't have to ride the gain. Worry about riding the gain because it has enough uh, audio gain and it's A to D conversion that you don't have to worry about it exceeding and clipping or going too low that you can't recover it uh, without a lot of noise. So look for a 32-bit recorder and uh, it will solve a whole lot of problems. Yeah, it is a, um, uh, I, I think that for anything that matters, I've generally for the last 15 years used a sound devices device. <laughs> so that's a 744, 788, Scorpio, uh, Mixpres, you know, all of those things. And it mostly has to do with just that they work all the time. And they, you know, if, if it's got a button there, they, they do what it does, what it needs to do. Um, and it's really thought out and it's really rugged. Uh, so, so those have been the case. And, and recently, 30, and I agree with Courtney, 32 bit float on a field recorder is table stakes at this point. Like it was really cool two years ago or three years ago do not buy a field recorder that does not have 32-bit float because it gives you so much range to make errors. Um, so you're not going to overmodulate. You're not going to under. You know, you, if things look relatively close to what they need to be on the on the meters, you're going to be fine. You know, and and you're going to. There's all kinds of things that are there. So uh, the Zoom, I think Zoom is a. I've used the Zooms in as a cost-effective. Uh, I, I know this will sound horrible, but as a disposable recorder, I've been in a lot of places where. There's chances where I it's not good for me to have a recorder, <laughs> so so I, uh, I in those cases I've used Zoom because I could just throw it out the side of the car, you know, and um, uh, I wouldn't probably I'd be more resistant to doing that with sound devices, and so um, but the Zoom has been you know it's produced lots of quality audio for me uh, all over the world as well as the sound devices ones, but if it matters and I'm doing it all the time I'm using sound devices if I'm in a more aggressive location where I may not come home with it I use a Zoom. Uh, next question. Comes to us from Alex Forty Goliner in London. What do you specula speculate is the future of red cameras? I got the feeling that they wanted to be bought by somebody else. Red, uh, I, you know, I think that red was an incredible thing when it came out. So when they when red came out, I think this would have been two thousand seven or eight, I believe, um, somewhere in that range. 
Uh, and I know some friends that were the, you know, I think Emery, Emery Wells, who, who started frame.io uh, was probably, I think he, I think he bought, I think I still remember, I think he bought number 42. <laughs> it was either 40 or 42 that he got of the Reds and he was excited about it. And I think that they had a moment and I think that they changed the industry. They, they changed the cost structure of what it takes. But I think that the, they, what the problem they've really had is that the workflow of the cameras is not great. Um, the workflow of the data that comes out of the cameras has been really painful. And I know that I used to, I used Reds for a long time. I owned a couple Reds um, and finally just got to a point where whether it was on-site fan noise um, or other things like that, I just chose to move away from them. And um, and I found that dealing with the data on the other side was pretty painful So um, compared to all the other pipelines. And so I think that's been the real problem for me. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Red has always taken the... Uh uh, path of, of building blocks. So you, you start with the sensor, just the sensor, and then you add this, and you add that, and you add this, and you add that, and you add 20 different modules onto it, and you build out something the size of a Volkswagen uh, eventually. Uh, and there's other better solutions that have come along that are not as proprietary as the Red Raw or the Red uh, uh, data handling uh, of those. And they've branched out to Red and bought uh, a studio here in Hollywood, Red Red Studios, which is the old Renmar stages, so they now have production stages, and uh, you yeah. know they're branching out. I don't think they're going to stay in the camera business for very long. I think that the the big thing that they uh, that they got squeezed by is they got squeezed by Airy just took over. Like when they when Airy got its head around how to do digital, they produced what every filmmaker wants generally for a major fe feature film. And Black Magic came up the other side and gave everybody else a whole bunch of stuff. And Sony pivoted really effectively into the lower cost solutions. Um, they've produced incredible cameras under 10 grand now that they didn't do before. And so I think that that Red got pulled between the you know just squeezed between those two markets um, in a in a hard way. And so they I, I I don't know if they'll survive, but they'll they'll be around for a little while longer. And now I'm going to hand this off to Bill. Thank you, Alex. We're very excited today uh, to be talking about Altheon IO. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a CMS or content management system that has been optimized for modern video workflows. Uh, one of those things that allows collaboration and content sharing. And in the spirit of full disclosure, Altheon provided me with a chance to explore the portal a bit. I'm in my early experimentation, but I'm very impressed. It's beautifully designed, and my initial experience with it have been very positive. And to help us explore Altheon in more depth. We have with us today their CEO, Matt Samaglia. Matt, how are you? Hey, Bill. Great to see you. It's great to see you. We're really excited to get a look at this. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about the design uh, process behind uh, Altheon and what you guys are trying to do? Well, I, I think actually it's a natural segue based on what you guys were just talking about, about Red, right? It's um, the production industry has been largely democratized and look at what we're doing right now. You know, this is a television show, if you will, uh, in, in every sense of the word, uh, that would have been, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars to produce and satellite trucks and, uh, you know, camera teams all around in everyone's houses or in, in studios that you guys would be renting. And now we're able to produce really good quality content that people are engaged with every day. And, you know, as technology evolves, I think that you see other companies um, benefiting from that if they're able to transition quickly enough. And the companies that aren't transitioning or, or reading the room, if you will, um, those are the companies that are left behind. And I think that it's always important for 
um, all of these companies to also recognize the fact that I remember NAB in past decades, you know, you go and it's what's the latest lens or what's the latest camera uh, attachments or what are the latest, you know, essentially cameras or chips that are coming out for those cameras to make it look better. And I remember right before COVID going to NAB, and it was a very different show for me. Uh, and it was uh, the the talk of the town was cloud. You know, everyone everyone started talking about cloud, and um, and and it's just fascinating to see how how much we we've, we've shifted. And I think going into the design process, as you asked around Altion, you know, this stemmed from me working in the industry for almost twenty years. So I started out as an editor for NBC Network News. Uh, I was at the Today Show and Nightly News during a transitionary period when they went from analog to digital. And I was this young 20-year-old kid that they'd send all over the world. And, you know, I can edit uh, endlessly and produce endlessly without any sleep and prove to them that you could actually produce breaking news on a computer. And uh, and it was, you know, it was it's, it's kind of crazy to think about today just because of what we do and where we are in, in time. But that was really uh, a transitionary period then. And, um, you know, I got to see this wave happen and I created a production company that ended up becoming a full service agency. And we serviced a lot of uh, Fortune 100 and 500 companies around the world. Um, I exited that business about six years ago. And again, um, I wouldn't say that that Altion is necessarily just a content management system. And I know that this sounds a little bit flimsy right now, but, you know, we, we always say that we're a, a production ecosystem because we are over the next year going to be expanding that ecosystem out into other uh, formats of, of what you can receive as a user of Altion. But right now we've been very focused on the last four years of building cloud. And this stemmed before COVID. And I, I, I always joke about the fact that I wrote an article for Forbes in uh, December of 2019 about uh, your remote workforce and, and mitigating against risk and uh, making sure that you have distributed teams. And this was coming off the tails of a uh, of the sort of California wildfire season that was pretty bad that year. And I come from Florida and um, I, I've witnessed countless hurricanes in my lifetime and I've covered countless hurricanes through NBC. And I always saw what um, a weather event that occurred in a specific area would just completely decimate production. You know, you you couldn't go into your office, you couldn't have access to your files and so on. So really kind of, uh, you know, stemmed from that as well. And, and we always knew that we were going to build something that had a little bit of an uphill battle, right? We knew that we were going to have about five years to convince people that, hey, it is acceptable to work remote or to have people um, working in distributed uh, teams. And then two months later, uh, COVID hit. And you know we 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 broke ground and COVID hits, and um, IBM, one of our business partners, had released. Um, they forgot that they were releasing it, but they released in I believe it was April of 2020 an article about Altion and about how we we're building this this software. We could not answer the phone quick enough. I mean, there were so many people that were calling us saying, "Hey, I, I you know read read about this article about Altion. How do I get logged in?" And we we had just come up with the name of the company and it was like, it was one of those like perfect storm moments. So, uh, you know, we steadily, we, we knew we were going to take a couple of years to build this product and, and really perfect it. And, um, 
and and it's been it's been incredible for me because um, it's a product really built by creatives for creatives, and uh, we've seen other platforms out there that are just way too overly complex. And when it came down to the design system for it, um, I'm I'm very OCD and I'm I'm very much a stickler for I only want to see in front of me what I absolutely am going to use, not everything else. You know, put away the clutter because. There's already so much fatigue as a creator of logging in and out of multiple platforms or um, where is this button versus that button on on single purpose apps, you know, or, hey, did I upload this file to this this service or this service or this service, you know, or, oh, wait, it's on my hard drive. So really kind of going into a lot of the fatigue that a, a typical creator has on a daily basis, um, you know, that that's shifted a lot of our mindset on UI. And, um, you know, all of us collectively are creators in the whole um, arc of a story, if you will, for the production process. It's no longer a single job of a person that's just doing one thing. And I think that that's that's really kind of a UI that we had to pay attention to. So as you use this tool, what's my experience? I know I've uploaded some stuff into the cloud. What happens next? What's my experience like? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the the biggest elements is transcoding. Uh, a lot of people that are shooting on, um, let's say, Blackmagic, for instance, uh, you shoot on a Blackmagic camera, it produces a beautiful uh, picture, and then from there you have to transcode it locally on your system, and that might take a day. And and that's you know, if you have one computer, that's that's completely um, derailing you from doing any other work because it's using that computational power of that local system. But now being able to upload raw red files into Altion Cloud, we're transcoding that media so that your entire team has access to it. And it's also generating proxy. So if your offline editor wants to use a proxy workflow for the NLE that they're in, whether it's uh, Premiere or Final Cut Pro, which we support natively, um, we are, are thinking about and talking about supporting Blackmagic Raw potentially by the end of this, or I'm sorry, Blackmagic DaVinci uh, resolution uh, by the end of the, the year. But, um, but you know, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that we're focused on right now and, and um, a, lot of, a lot of exciting things that are going to come up at NAB. You mentioned the integration with IBM as the cloud part of this. Does that mean this is a global service? Does it work everywhere? Uh, yeah, so so right now we we are uh, or we have been focused on a data center here in the U.S. Uh, come Q2, we're going to be expanding out globally. Uh, so this has been always a strategy of ours for the last couple of years, and um, we've we've stuck to that strategy so far. And there's a lot of other uh, regulations and, and laws that go into place when you're going into other territories around the world that obviously we're trying to follow and um, and make sure that. All of our users globally have the best optimal experience. And by doing that, that's putting data centers everywhere. And um, if you're a user in uh, you know, the UK, for instance, uh, why not use servers that are hosted in the UK uh, so that it's as close as possible? But we, we do have some early beta testers in Amsterdam right now who are testing it, and they're actually having really good performance off of our data centers here in the US. So. Um, so it just it just goes to show the connectivity that we have globally right now and how we're we're able to support things. The world keeps getting smaller and smaller. Uh, describe your typical user from the low end to the high end. I imagine you have big companies and you also have individuals. 
Yeah, I mean, we we have a, a fair amount of influencers that are on the platform right now. Again, these are these one-person teams. It's the I'm shooting everything, I'm editing everything, I'm organizing everything, and I'm I'm outputting it out to my my TikTok channel or my YouTube channel. So we have we have that uh, end of of the spectrum, and then we all the all the way up to we have people that are producing TV shows on it. So it's uh, it's you know some of the streaming services and and whatnot. It's it's people that knew of services that existed potentially at larger uh, studios or, or production facilities that they were working on uh, with um, at one point in their career. And they knew that these tools existed in some fashion, but now that they've gone off on their own or they've, they've spun up their own production company, they obviously don't have the millions of dollars that it takes to go and support uh, uh, one of these you know, larger dams, if you will, and and they see what we have and in, in our integrations and it it very much is a multi-tenant environment and we did that purposefully you know we we always built this system as uh, if we were one of the major studios but then we wanted to splice it out and and give access literally to everyone we've got some questions here from the panel coming in alex do you want to take us into that whoops you're muted uh, I, I've got a couple um, that uh, for you. So uh, first, um, uh, can you apply LUTs in the transcode? Not yet. Uh, it is it is something that we we are working on. Um, I, I we we've done a lot of black magic tests, and as we get into other raw formats this year, um, so in in Q early Q two, were um, we were actually licensed uh, Apple ProRes raw from Apple. Um, we're one of very few companies that have been granted that privilege. Uh, so that's going to be really exciting for us to be able to support that, especially with some of the new DG, uh, DJI products that have come out recently. Um, and then later on this year, it'll be uh, Red Raw and Airy Raw uh, that we're transcoding in the cloud. But when we sort of when we start to get a little bit more robust on the raw side of things, uh, supporting LUTs is definitely something that's in our roadmap. Good question, though. Have you thought about um, basic assembly edits in the cloud? So not not replacing what Final Cut does, but I've got a bunch of stuff and I just want to cut it together and deliver maybe the, the raw data with an EDL or something like that to, to Final Cut or Resolve. Wait for another couple months and see what we announce. <laughs> um, and, is and, that an NAB hint? Maybe no. Actually, that... that's that's not. It's definitely not an NAB hint. But um, look, I think that our our we're a relatively small people of 50 uh, for this company. And, and you know, to be at this stage that we are, I'm so proud of the product that we built today and and in the circumstances that we built it in. You know, I mean, it was building a team at the beginning of COVID and trying to, you know, really rally the troops, if you will, and tell people we need to keep working on this because there's a need for it. Um, you know, we we certainly are at a point right now where I feel incredibly comfortable with the product bill you know you've been testing it um you know we we have other people that are testing it we have schools that are testing it now for their school systems to see uh if they could bring it into their curriculum for next year which is exciting for me because i i personally got my my sort of itch if you will for the industry in in elementary school but um you know when it comes to focus we're always focused on making sure that we do something really well before we then expand out and add another functionality, right? So um, we have a lot of people that come to us and say, oh, well, you don't do this, 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 and this. And then we go to them and say, 
well, do you do that now with your workflow? And then immediately say, they say, well, no, I don't, I don't have AI, you know, uh, image recognition on my hard drive. And I'm like, well, then, you know, give us a little bit of a break. Uh, we're, we're getting there, but we, he just came out, just came out. You know, exactly. You know. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, we're, we, we launched beta public beta at NAB last year, uh, just to give you a perspective of where we are as a company. And, um, you know, we largely launched our, I would say our best public release was probably in around October of last year. So not too far uh, in the past that that we've been sort of releasing these these various versions. But I guarantee you, what you see at NAD um, even today is a very slick, streamlined product. Uh, it's going to be even more refined. Um, is, is there any in the transcode process of this building? It may not be there now, but uh, has there been thought about heads and adding heads and tails? So in, in a lot of our automated encoding systems that we've used in the past, I throw a bunch of stuff into it, it grabs some metadata, applies it to an open slate, just so that I know what I'm looking at as it delivers it to the team. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not something, that's not a workflow that we would we would necessarily think about. Um, I, I would say that more than anything, all, all of our, um, we, we built sort of an item structure, if you will. And within that item structure, it's a container. So that container contains the metadata, the sidecar file, the proxy, and the originals, and we never touch the original. So that always stays to its original uh, pristine quality. Um, I would say that in your workflow, it's still a little bit of an analog workflow. I, I hate to tell you that, but uh, I, I would argue more around having that data at your disposal, at your fingertips, using a proper UI like Altion uh, could potentially simplify that that problem that you have, and also I, I, when when it comes down to the proxies, it has to be frame accurate. So when you're doing an, a proper offline online edit, if I have a proxy that's slightly different from my original clip, everything's out of whack now. So um, that's something that we've we've really been able to um, solve as a problem there, especially when you're you're doing edits uh, quickly. Yep. Um, and uh, so, paint me a picture of how you would do this this project. So we have, we're covering NAB. So we, we're, we're descending on NAB. Um, we've got about 15 people on the ground uh, and we've got about 35 people offsite that are gonna be, you know, working on post and, and cutting and, be, you know, commenting and so on and so forth. We, um, and, we and, and currently, I mean, for this show, for NAB, we'll be using LucidLink to tie everybody together and make all of those things happen. But, but tell me what, whether you would integrate with LucidLink or whether you see yourself as the replacement for that, and also like how you would use it. So we've got people on phones, they've got live use, they've got the ability to upload things that are from camera files. Uh, we have people off site that are editing those those pieces out. And I'm just so I can understand your product, my thought was is that if you can just explain like, how would you execute that with your product? Um, well, on the, first, on the first part of that question, um, on the LucidLink thing, uh, I'd pay attention to, to what we might be talking about at NAB. Um, I actually have a call with them right after this. <laughs> um, so love, so uh, on the LucidLink side, uh, big fans. Let's just let's just see what happens. Um, but but really, uh, and, and my CTO is listening right now, probably, and saying, Matt, don't add one more thing. To... <laughs> but but. Um, <laughs> But, but uh, no, uh, you know, I would say, uh, all right, so here's your workflow. What if you have somebody shooting on something like this? Mm -hmm. um, we just released this week uh, an iOS app. 
So you're shooting on your iPhone. And do you shoot uh, with the I, you with your ISF OS app or we're using something like Filmic or the built-in? Whatever you want. Whatever you want, okay. Whatever you want. Uh, and, and you go into the iOS app, you click upload, depending on the you know 70,000 people there, uh, and if they're gonna uh, degrade your bandwidth uh, mm-hmm. on the cell service, that that I can't really guarantee, but um, who knows? Maybe you find a hotspot somewhere at a booth that might be really uh, cleverly positioned we're, we're at press, NAD. So we can go to the press pad. We we could find our way back. We shoot a bunch of stuff, go to the press room, and upload it from there. Yeah. So so I would say there's there's a couple different ways, and and this is where Altion gets really slick. Uh, so what if you have a computer that you set up in the press room, and you know that it's on a dedicated line of some sort, or on on fast Wi-Fi, and somebody goes out and shoots on a card and just brings that card back to the computer. There's no physical person there, but let's say somebody here is in Burbank. I'm just making that up for for argument's sake. Okay, text to Bill. Hey, Bill, uh, just plugged the card into the computer in the press room. Bill goes into Altion and actually sees that card using our accelerator. And the accelerator is leveraging a Sparrow. So now in the press room, we've given you a Sparrow for free because all of our users get it. And and I know a Sparrow well to know, and no one else in the press room will like you. (laughs) Exactly. Because you're going to say- But we don't care because we want really good quality content for you guys. Yeah, exactly. So, So now what happens is Bill actually is able to transfer that file accessing the hard drive on that computer through the Altion accelerator. So you just pop a card in, text Bill, head back out with your new fresh card. Bill is uploading all of those files and verifying those files are being sent up to Altion Cloud and that they're existing for the entire team to now have access because somebody else on the team might access the Altion app and be like, hey, what what was shot by Alex? I want to go and see his folder. And you go and you start clicking through our app and you see all of the shots that Alex shot so that you know you don't double up on that. Or Alex might go to somebody else and say, hey, uh, I was at this booth. I didn't shoot this one thing. Can you go and get a little bit of extra coverage for that? So now it really becomes a collaborative process throughout the whole um, NAB of of news gathering, if you will. Um, I, I expect you guys will be at the 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 Altion booth a lot shooting a lot of content and um one of the things that I would I would say there too is we're going to have 12 systems on the show floor for people to use so if you guys come into our booth and you say hey I want to upload some content here by all means we would love for you to do that um but in, a, in an easy us. workflow <laughs> in an easy workflow scenario uh I would say you know you guys are uploading somebody else is is bringing that footage in and editing it um because of the slow wi-fi speeds or because of slow speeds in some of the hotels take advantage of the proxy workflow right download the proxies they're very lightweight files they're 720p mp4s not a whole lot of uh, space i was at a convention last week with 2700 students and we were we were doing demos every day and we just kept using proxies as downloads and they were quick. I mean, they really downloaded quick. That is not a Spera for download, but it's it's standard download speeds are are actually pretty pretty substantial. Yeah, 
Interesting. I and hope I talk through the workflow well enough. I think so. I think so. So then without what, plugging our booth as many times as I could. Exactly. <laughs> what and what what hall is the booth in so that we know where to take our files to upload? We are directly next to Lucidlink. Oh, interesting. Go figure. North Hall. <laughs> How convenient. Right across uh, from Avid. Yep. Uh, and uh, right by the main stage. That's great. And 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 then as people are editing, would someone pull that? I guess the editors would like as they're sharing files, their edit files and so on and so forth. Now, again, typically we're doing a lot of that in Lucidlink right now. Um, it'd be interesting to see how, we're really interested to see how we would tie in Altion with Lucidlink where we would, uh, you know, have- Me be, too. Yeah, yeah, so, all right, all right. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, my, uh, my last question for you before we hand it off to somebody else is, are you, you, you said you're gonna probably handle other formats that, you know, might be there. Uh, is, is USDZ one of those formats? Or can you say? Um, we we have a I, we have a pretty long list of formats that we're going to be supporting in the near future. Um, again, we have developers that are just working on the Altion transcoder. And what's been great about that process um, is we built it as its own standalone service. So within Altion, a lot of what we've been building is not just for Altion to consume, but for uh, some of our technologies to be leveraged outside of Altion. So we actually have a few companies that are on the enterprise side right now that have their own dam. And they're like, we love your transcoders or we'd love to take advantage of your transcoders in the cloud. Can we do that? And, and certainly that's how we built it. So we're able to give those API keys off. So we have a team just dedicated to building out this transcoding service. And um, again, you will see other formats every month sort of be uh, a part of the fold, if you will. But I, I have the list, I don't have it right in front of me, but um, we will we will add it if it's not. That's great. Uh, John Preto's next up, John. Hey Matt, thanks for your time, we appreciate having you here. I'm an old IT networking guy, and when I hear your name, I think of Altion, the, the networking gear. Do you have any issues or challenges with that with that old brand name? No, I mean, I, I think that's it's been largely defunct for a few years, but also there's like an Altion Health that exists out there that we know of. Um, our patent lawyers and, and our, our trademark lawyers have uh, been able to navigate a lot of that through and, and we've, we've you know, received uh, proper registration for the company. Um, the naming process of Altion was actually just super fascinating for me. I get, I get very geeked out about that. Um, we worked with Lexicon Branding in San Francisco and you know they're sort of legendary behind Pentium or Swiffer or Sonos or you know there's that the name list goes on uh, for for companies that they've they've produced and working with them what was also really great is they made sure that this this doesn't mean you know fu in Mandarin or something uh, so so we've we've done a lot of checks uh, in terms of the naming for the company and and we've had it for a number of years now so we're we're pretty good there. Okay, it's about time to turn our attention to producer questions. For those of you in the producer core out there viewing the show, you are more than welcome to add questions. We have a solid group of them to start out with. So, uh, Alex, are you going to read questions for this? Oops, you're uh, absolutely. Next question yeah. is uh, from Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Hernab, Germany. And Fred asks, uh, will there be a DaVinci Resolve integration like there is for Final Cut and Premiere? Uh, let's see what the year brings us. <laughs> but I would say I would say it's not out of the question. Okay, very good. Uh, next question is from Sky Gleason uh, in Seattle, Washington. And Sky asks, 
Where does the, the final decision maker, content producer, fit into your system? Yeah, so it's a, it's actually a really cool question. We have we have a few scenarios within Altion for non-users. So um, upon ingest, one of my coolest favorite features is the ability to send a request link out to somebody that doesn't have an Altion account. And I'm gonna I'm gonna take you through the story process here. Of, of I'm gonna answer that question, but let's say I hire uh, somebody to do audio work for me today, or uh, it's a stringer that that I've hired for for something that I'm I'm working on. I can actually send a non-user upload link, and they receive this email, and I just drag files into that link, hit upload, and it uploads not only into the project but also into the folder that I designated that person to be uploading content to. So I can constantly be getting um, footage from shoots all around the world from various contributors. Uh, we have a, a super PAC in Washington, actually, that's using it right now for people that are knocking on doors at, at houses to say, hey, do you want to vote for, you know, Susie Joe for mayor or something like that? And they'll shoot on an iPhone um, and none of these volunteers have Altion accounts. So they'll shoot it, they'll upload it using this link, and then the people in, in DC are actually receiving it in their edit bay. On the flip side of that, we can send out non-user preview links. So if I have a full production that's being shot, uh, I edited it, and I want my producer or a decision maker or a client to be able to see that, they receive a link from Altion, they can watch it happy, happy times. But we also added three other parameters. Two of the parameters are giving them access to the proxy file or original file to download it, okay? And then the other parameter is password. So that's that's another you know really key ingredient and that password is specific to that link. So it's not related to your user account, it's not related to them, it's not related to anything else. So you can make up a password on the fly for that. And then the third part is expiration. So you can actually set it to expire in a day or a week or never. And I personally, when, when we were doing a lot of branded content for companies, I would send a YouTube link out, and this is 10 years ago, um, as, a, as a preview. And they would receive the link. And then the next day we'd say, okay, go ahead and watch. Here's a new version. And they'd keep looking at it and they'd say, well, Matt, I'm, I'm watching it. You've not made any changes. And I'm like, well, what link are you using? So the, the ability of being able to remove that link or uh, set it to expire automatically within a day is actually a, a really critical feature. And then um, in the near future, and I'm talking within the next month or two, we're going to be allowing commenting for those links as well. So it's the ability of being able to have a decision maker that doesn't have an Altian account, receives a link, they have their email attached to it or their name attached to it. So when they write comments in that video, um, those comments would end up showing up in your NLE, whether it's Premiere or Final Cut, potentially down the road, DaVinci. Uh, and and um, you know again, you're, you're streamlining that entire production process without forcing people to have Altian accounts. Good Next guy. question. This guy had a follow-up, I think. Yeah, I just... Okay. Uh, the, uh, the annotation of your your decision maker it you say is that a part of the pr process currently or is that in the future so pr currently uh if anyone wanted to make comments uh or annotations to something they would have to have an altian account um in in order to do that 
And a lot of that is just around security and auditing processes. So when when that that comment shows up within, again, your NLE, it'll say, you know, Bob commented at this time this 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 comment. So um, so it kind of we want that because again, as a former editor, I don't want fifty comments out there, and I don't know who made the comment. Uh, I think that's just that's just as valuable information as the comment itself. Because if I have to trace it back and say, well, I don't know what you mean by blue dot. Uh, and there's a hundred blue dots on the screen. Um, then, then you know, it's sort of irrelevant to me as data. Uh, and have you looked at, uh, or, or actually, have you managed a, a link being a container that you put, you keep on changing the movie? So for reviews, one of the things that we do uh, is we have a, a, we'll give a client, a producer, or a you know, a, 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 you know, a folder. There's one link; they don't have to think about it. But as we do updates, they're getting the same link. And we do this inside of Frame. You know, this is what we use right now is currently is Frame for those kinds of things. And and we we throw those in so that they're always getting the same link, but it's a different video as it gets updated. Is that is that a concept that that you guys have, are well, at all? Well, first off, I, I think for non-Adobe users uh, to then have to go get Adobe subscription for Frame, uh, it, it becomes a little bit difficult. Um, so it's, it's, it's great not, that there's other services that are popping up out there. Definitely um, glad that there's other services. I'm saying that's, I'm just giving a point of reference. Uh, for sure, for sure. It's yeah, no, thing I, for us to use, but, but it's the, th but I'm saying that behavior is something that's super useful for us that someone doesn't have to find a, a we can keep on giving them version five, version six, version seven, and we're not sending them a new link. We're just sending them. This is the, uh, this is the place that you go to look at the thing. Yeah. Check out what we have at NAB. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Uh, next question. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Next, doesn't matter who says it. Next question. <laughs> next question is from Alex Forty Golner. Uh, and Alex asks, for when you are dealing with comments about a relatively short asset, a motion graphic overlay, for example, in a long timeline, are you able to include the relevant time code within the asset with the comment? Yes. Well, that's pretty definitive. <laughs> Shows up right away. <laughs> okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, uh, next question is my, from, from Douglas Carmichael. And he says, could you see your product scaling to the level of a major studio film or similar? I, I think, you know, as a founder of a company, that would be an incredible moment. Um, I, I, you know, I've always, I always said from the beginning, I remember I was with a colleague of mine in San Francisco probably two years ago. It was right, right after sort of things started opening up again. And we kind of had this moment of looking at each other being like, what, you know, how incredible is it that we're able to do what we're doing? And the thing that I get most excited about is hearing from users of what they produced and what we were able to help them produce. And I'm excited for the, you know, the commercial that people are talking about. And we know that Altion helped produce that commercial um, but I think it's always important to focus back on our roots, which is the 99% of the world that's been very underserved to date. And, you know, it's, it's always the sort of kiss of death for a product when they start getting in with a major enterprise client, because a lot of that uh, comes, you know, there comes some, some fame to it and, and other uh, sort of um, elements, but really when it comes down to it, that enterprise client is probably sucking you down and asking you for a million different um, changes and fixes and attention on them uh, and, and pulling you away from the individual users. But 
I think what we're seeing, especially with even the last Oscars, how many uh, of these movies were produced by very scaled down teams because of COVID. And uh, you know, you're able to produce in a very unique way today using the technology that we have at our disposal. So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past us to, to to be able to be part of a major motion picture at some point. I do think it, it does seem like the, the elections are going to be a big deal for for you, mostly because I think that there's just such a matter. You're, you're mentioning that in the collaborative nature of 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 campaigns of needing to especially national campaigns to uh, be able to aggregate huge amounts of content from all over the all over the United States, at least uh, seems like a real big opportunity there. Yeah. And I, I think also just coming from my news background, I mean, I, I covered campaigns and I've covered many news events that happened in the world. So I understand what it takes to do quick turn production and I understand what it takes to have many players involved all collaborating in very harsh environments, quite frankly. Um, but when it comes down to our app, for instance, for a embed that's a that's covering a campaign trail that's by themselves, uh, we know they're probably going to shoot on iPhone at this point or a phone. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so if you're shooting on iPhone and you have our native app uh, running on the phone and you're able to upload that content directly to your editor somewhere in the world immediately, that becomes a really streamlined process that you don't have to think about what you're doing from the technology side. So you're able to go out and cover the news and really focus on the story that you're trying to tell without being bogged down by many technical decisions along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Next question is from Alex Forty Golner in London, and uh, Alex asks, uh, "What do you see is the future of object object oriented media, where productions are distributed as clouds of media clips plus presentation metadata, such as multiple timelines?" Yeah, I mean, I think that comes down to a little bit of our item structure and making sure that everything's in a container. Uh, you know, keeping even even right now, I'm on a um, I'm on a group inside Simpty and it's talking about lens metadata. And one of the really cool geeky things that I get in that is being able to retain uh, lens metadata inside of our platform that's also attached to the clip. So if I'm a VFX artist, instead of trying to figure out and gauge, well, did they uh, you know, change the exposure here? Or what was the focal point uh, of, of the rack focus while they were, you know, chasing somebody down the street and it's and somebody is spending a month to try and figure out those key points, um, being able to catalog that in the camera by the half frame and then bring that metadata into Altion as a sidecar file within the item structure. And then when you go out to your VFX artist and they see this, this shot, Again, it's being edited on a standard editing platform. Uh, somebody else is taking that same file and bringing it into a VFX uh, machine, and they're able to drag that sidecar file on top of it. You no longer have months of trying to figure out where did these various events happen within the lens. And then also lens curvature, right? Because I know the serial number of that lens and I know what model the lens was, I can apply a curvature uh, to that visual effect shot that I'm producing, all because of the data that's contained within this item structure. 
my my first uh, experience with that was I, I worked on Star Wars Episode One. We were getting camera file camera reports uh, from the from the uh, from the set at Leavesden, and we we're like, this is not a thirty five millimeter lens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we've gone we've come a long way. But you were just like, there's some piece of paper that someone wrote while they were rushed they were rushing around, and they just wrote ah uh, this and and uh, and so yeah, getting all that metadata to to follow the the follow the clip is usually the biggest the biggest problem yeah uh, it's about 20 minutes that, to oh go ahead matt finish up your answer yeah i mean just just one more thing on metadata you know one of our other big initiatives for the company is blockchain and i know that that's sort of a dirty world in the world that we live in today and you know people are very confused about a lot of the aspects to it but i've i've never swayed away from it i'm i'm still very um cognizant of of the good and the bad that has happened over the last couple of years but Largely, when you think about metadata, um, putting metadata on a blockchain and locking it in and having a proper provenance of that data source so that, let's say, um, you know, this is being shot today, but somebody can go and change the metadata and say it was shot last week. Uh, that's very easy in a lot of digital asset management systems. But being able to know that there's a file attached with metadata and it can't be altered, but it can be added to. Right, we we want to add to metadata, but knowing that there's that provenance there and being able to track it over time to say, hey, was this really shot last week or was it shot today? Um, you know, that also goes in line with camera sidecar metadata and and everything else that we're talking about here, so that at no point in the production process can that be altered. Yeah, it seems like uh, that's important for filmmaking, but it, it it's also really important for news gathering and everything else. So being, I mean, one of the problems that a lot of us are talking about a lot is how do you know what's real anymore? And, you know, that may not be the only way to do it, but how do you know that, but with the blockchain, to your point, you could say, you know, this is, we know that it was shot with this camera with potentially with this person in this look, you know, like it's it, when that stuff gets bound to it, it's following that that item around and you would know when it was if that was broken even down to the child layer right so even if you have uh let's say 700 cuts inside of a, a final mastered uh video that you're putting out for air um being able to know that all of the sub elements within there were also verified uh that's that's part of a lot of what the tracking that we're yeah. helping our users do and and that we're we're still you know, formulating it ourselves. And I think that even user groups like what you guys are doing is so important because we gain a lot of knowledge from this. And I'm excited to talk to people at NAB as I did last year, because we learned a lot at NAB last year. There was a lot of validation to our product, but there was a lot of learning that we took out of that in focusing really on what the product needed to be uh, in order to be successful in the future. And, and we'll continue to evolve like that. I mean, I, I think that there's no software product that would ever uh, just stop uh, innovating. And if, if they do, we probably don't hear about them anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think a lot about the, um, the when you were talking about that, I hadn't really thought through that, but even just down to copyright, you know, I think that there's a, that the blockchain is a really interesting possible replacement for cop copyright in some cases where I've, it's much, it could be potentially much more nuanced. You know, you can set the contract of what the usage of this, of this file is, and it's not limited to the basic copyright solutions that are out there. It says, well, you can use it for this. It's, it's a little bit like the, the GNU licenses that you can use, you know, there's all these different versions of these that, 
um, that are that have been put Larry Lessig put together. Um, but the but I think that yeah, you could theoretically add those right to the to the blockchain. So we we launched uh, with Opera Crypto Browser about a month or two ago, and the idea behind it was we're actually integrated within the browser. So they they have an Altion NFT minting platform. It's called Launchpad directly within the browser. So you click on it, you see us right there. And my whole thought process on that was to really um, get it accessible to people so that you didn't have to go through lots of technical problems in order to mint an NFT. Uh, it's still a little bit kludgy. Uh, it's, 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 it hasn't been cleaned up, if you will. And my belief is 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I used to go to a drugstore or a film lab and say, here's my film reel. Uh, I'll pay you $10 to develop it and you'll give me physical prints back. And I owned those prints. They were, they were mine. Today, we're in a world where everyone's uploading content to social media platforms and they don't have that ownership anymore. Those, that digital rights has been, you know, it's gone. And, and you know, you guys were talking about EULA's earlier with uh, some of the other uh, companies that exist out there. And um, I don't think anyone has really read the full length of the description of what these social media platforms are able to do with your content and what ownership rights you have. So for me, convincing people or exposing this world of NFTs, not in the sense of I'm going to mint something and go make a million dollars off of it because it's just silly, funny money at this point. Um, but I'm minting something because it's truly mine and I want to own that. And if I want to share a picture of, you know, me on vacation with my friends, I might mint it as an NFT, but I still own that, that image. It's not owned by, uh, again, another social media platform. Now, have we gotten to the point where gas prices have gone down to where we can mint things for our own personal? For use? sure. For sure. Yeah. And I think that the Ethereum merge that happened last year really helped a lot of that. So we're getting to a reasonable price. I think that is, and it's, is it all moved to proof of stake? Is that the, is that what's made the Yeah. Deal? I mean, and, and we're down to dollars at this point, you know, it's, it's like a dollar or two to mint uh, an NFT, depending on obviously some of the other parameters, but we've seen that within our, our platform, but there are other blockchains that exist out there that, you know, there's no gas fees and, and, and such, but um, we're, we're just supporting Ethereum at the moment for our NFT minting platform. But it is also something that we're looking at doing as part of our publisher within Altion is being able to mint out or um, publish things on blockchain uh, down the road. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, uh, Tom Cruise is, uh, oh, sorry, I, I, got, I jumped questions. Next question is from Harshid Travitti uh, from Daytona Beach, Florida. And Harshid asks, uh, what type of accessibility could be found in your product as far as for those who might be using a screen reader or magnification? Could this product be uh, for them, especially for those who might record with various tools and uh, to get something correct? Well, first of all, hi from uh, Florida, my home state. But uh, yeah, I, I think that we're actually working with somebody um, at Apple right now who focuses specifically on uh, people with disabilities and um, making sure that we're focusing on anything uh, for either hearing impaired or, or slightly visually impaired. So there's a lot of elements into the product that we're trying to bake in over uh, the next couple months that really help out with, with people with disabilities. Um, so for sure, um, you know, keep, keep tuned on that one. Um, I, I would say that you'll see some updates coming out in the next couple months with, with regard to that. 
Uh, when we add speech to text later on uh, this year for natural language processing, um, that'll also help out with being able to see a lot of the, you know, almost a closed caption, if you will, uh, that's being generated. Um, that will also help out some of the editing process there, I would, I would say. Next, Next question. question. Next question is, sorry. <laughs> Next question is from uh, Douglas Carmichael. And he said, Tom Cruise is shooting part of the latest Mission Impossible aboard the U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. How would your product handle workflows in environments where intermittent or poor Internet connections? Really hard. Uh, you know, I, I think that it's it's only as good as your Internet connection. Uh, we had one user uh, a month ago that was was really not having a good experience. And we finally asked them to do a speed test on their Internet and they're like, well, we have an idea uh, ISDN line, <laughs> and it was like, you know, kilobytes uh, yeah. upload and download. So, um, look, it's not for everyone. Uh, and and you know, I think that if if you really look at the majority of people right now that are working at home over the last two years, they've they've been able to upgrade their internet. We're seeing a lot of um, aspects, whether it's Starlink. So we have a, a documentary that's shooting right now, and they have a Starlink set up uh, at their base camp. So they're using that for uploads uh, and it's it's working out well for them. Um, again, it's it's you're only as good as your your last mile, right? And and if if the internet connection is going out constantly, uh, nothing nothing right now that we can do, uh, no sorcery or, or, or magic that, that we've got baked in that uh, can help uh, without uh, proper connectivity. You know, I don't know if you saw the story recently, but there was a guy who got stuck in the snow in his car and he was worried about safety and he texted his location on his phone and then he attached his phone to a drone and flew it up until it connected to a cell tower that sent the message and he and another car that had gotten stuck got out of it by virtue of that brilliant piece of thinking. Is there ever a potential that we might have a store and forward kind of process where if you don't have a good connection right now, that your device will hold on to your files until it gets a better connection and then connect and upload? Yeah, that's largely a lot of what our accelerator does. So the accelerator has that logic built into it. And um, again, it also has Aspera built into it. So it'll just keep trying and trying and trying uh, until you basically tell it, stop trying. Perfect. Alex, next question. The next question is from Alex 4D Golner in London. And Alex asks, I suggest you add uh, the ability to apply arbitrary Apple Motion 5 template to transcodes. We could then add any kind of overlays we want and process the video in ways that we want. Would that be possible? I was with the compressor team on Monday. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Noted. Uh, all right. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And uh, Roscoe asks, you were recently the keynote speaker in Long Beach for student broadcasters. Uh, what was their response to Altion.io? And uh, what was the best question they asked? Um, the, the best part about it was I was getting asked questions by students that were 13, 14, 15 years old that rival any guys on this panel right now. And that to me was so cool. Uh, I mean, it was so cool because it really did bring me back to my roots of when I was in high school. Uh, I was, I was, I was that kid. 
that would would go into a news station and start looking at everything and asking the technical director, what does this do? What does this do? What does this do? Or I remember being as nerdy as uh, every, I think it was every twice a year, B&H would come out with their catalog. And this was pre-internet, keep in mind. And I would flip every page and marker tech was another one that I was looking, I always looked forward to. And again, I remember being 15, 16 years old and it was like Christmas morning when the B&H catalog came, came in the mail and I could flip through and see everything was there. Um, it was an incredible experience talking to them. Um, obviously I, I, I spoke as the keynote on the first night, so I didn't really have that, uh, one-on-one interaction, but what was great about it is I was able to stay for another two days at the conference and really connect. So whether it was walking through the halls and people would stop me and, and, uh, you know, say that my story is sort of resonated with them, but then they would ask me some questions. That was great. Cause I, I loved being able to be accessible to them and show them, you know, sort of what they're, what they're capable of. And, um, I, I think lastly on, on this whole, whole notion of things, these are the future storytellers. And I'm not saying that lightly. I mean, these are going to be the people that we're going to be watching their news broadcasts um, or their content down the road. Uh, and, and I think that it was important to instill on them something that was instilled on me very early, which is integrity. And, and you know, what you're producing has a huge weight to it. And, you know, A, you can't lose, um, you know, people's, people's trust in you. Uh, so you always have to retain that. And that was something that I was always cognizant of when I was reporting for NBC Network. But, but also, I think that they have such um, skewed viewpoints on a lot of things that are going on in the world just based on either fake news or being able to produce content just because it generates a lot of views, Right. But because of that, they also have a huge responsibility. And that was one of the biggest things that I really tried to express to them while I was there is that this, this responsibility is, is something to be taken seriously. Nice. Next question. Next question is uh, from Ben Varna, Varna in uh, Rosemont, Illinois. And, and Ben asks, would it be possible to integrate a Brightcove account with 10, 000, plus 10,000 videos? And would it be possible without using the Altion storage? What was the what was the first part of that question? It broke up. To integrate uh, to what would be would it be possible to integrate a Brightcove account with over ten thousand videos? And would it be possible without using the Altion storage? No. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, next, next question uh, is uh, from Courtney Gooden in Hollywood, and uh, Courtney asks: When transcoding to proxies, uh, can it sync double system BWF uh, audio ISO files to video using timecode and maintain the metadata through post? Currently, we don't have that available, um, so we largely have been working on making sure that the video just works. Um, so, so if you have video there, we do have a concept. Uh, it's it's privately for us right now um, that we've been testing on relinking clips, and it also it also goes with a lot of other things that we have um, with potential camera to cloud workflows using like a Teradek, let's say. Uh, and and Alex, you and I were both talking to John the other day about this. But um, again, thinking about um, relinking or attaching other elements to this item structure that we have, uh, certainly on our radar. 
And it should be getting easier and easier inside NLEs to do sync clips or something equivalent where you're doing that marriage before you upload into the cloud. Yeah, but I, I would also argue if, you're, if your audio person is uploading separately from the video that exists out there, there um, to be able to, to create that, that joint in the cloud, um, that's something that we're, we're certainly really working closely on. But again, um, I think that we're going to succeed as the production world continues to adopt us, but believe in us, right? It takes a village, genuinely. You only see... Uh, products succeed over time because people really believed in them from the beginning. They wanted to see them work. They wanted to see them advance. Um, we can't advance without people coming into Altion, signing up, uh, you know, bearing with some of our, our bumps and bruises that we might have a little bit along the way. But, you know, no software company has been perfect. And, um, you know, we're really trying our hardest as a small team Again, not being a, not being uh, sort of funded by a major institution or enterprise, uh, you know, we 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 are um, very lean on how we're approaching things, but also it's very purposeful mindset of what's very important today for the majority of people that are out there in the majority of workflows. Next, we have one more question. Oh, next question is from Mickey Makachor in uh, the Philippines. And Mickey asks, I am able to saturate my gigabit connection with frame.io. Would I be able to do the same with Altion? Where is Altion hosted? 100%. Uh, well, when, when we expand out globally in terms of our servers everywhere around the world, uh, I think that'll only get faster. But I would say that right now, you, you should have no problems. We we've have people in India that work for us and um, even from India, they're accessing our servers in Dallas from IBM on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, and, and they're testing everything that we have, uh, and it's very good performance for them. Nice. Matt, this has been a fabulous chat. Thank you very much for coming in and letting us know what is going on with Altium. Um, we hope that you have continued success, and I'm looking forward to learning more and more about your product as you go. Do you have any last words, anything you'd like to leave us with before we finish up today? No, please, you know, stop by our booth at NAB, pull me aside, grab me if uh, if you're you're there. Um, you know, I love to make time for anyone that I can. Obviously, it's, it's you know, kind of craziness that's going to be going on, but um, more importantly, you know, try it out. There's free trials, and, and, you know, everyone can log in, and it's unlimited time for that free trial. Your user account is always your user account. So uh, if you go from one place to another, to another, to another, or you're accessing multiple groups, you always get to retain your own personal user account. And that could be free for life if you really, if you play it, play it, play us right, if you will. Um, but, you know, we have various storage tiers. So online, nearline archives. So if you have a large archive, please, by all means, uh, we have people that are using us right now because they're able to have the full UI structure of Altian in an archive process. So I think that's also something really important to point out. Um, but I, I can't thank you all enough for what you're doing for the community. Uh, because, you know, I listened to the to the show and, and um, you know, Bill, you've said a lot of really great things about us in the past as well. And, you know, I just, I really can't, uh, you know, say enough appreciation for what you guys are doing, not only for Altion, but also for the rest of the community. 
Well, it takes a village. I agree with you 100%. And you are an exciting part of the growth of this village. And so we look forward to seeing what you're developing. I look forward to you at NAB and in the future. Um, our next show, don't forget, Saturday, the class reunion. We've been here for three years. So definitely tune in tomorrow if you want to look back at some of where we've come from. Uh, and don't forget, NAB is coming up. It's going to be a big deal. Our office hours teams will be doing hours of live coverage from the show floor, as well as producing YouTube shorts and doing all sorts of crazy things that we've never tried before. That's part of what we are. We're a test bed for technology to see how we can leverage this whole Zoom thing we do every day. Uh, we'll be on the floor at NAB from April 16th through the 19th in some form or another. Show up here for the show in the morning and we'll tell you exactly what's going on every day. Last but certainly not least is our tremendous thank yous. Uh, everybody who is involved in the show, we want to say a profound thanks to our panelist experts who come here every day to help people, our producers, you, the viewers who drive the show content with your questions and your votes on the questions. That's critical to how we do it. And the amazing behind the scenes crew. It's a global operation and we have a tremendous number of people who are coming together every single day to make office hours possible. So watch the credits. They're about to start right now. Thank you for watching Office Hours, and we'll see you all tomorrow. And a quick reminder that uh, Justine Ezrick will be on Gray Matter today. Hi, Justine. will be on Gray Matter today. Uh, the links are out there. You want to ask the questions early. Justine is going to tweet a link <laughs> to the Gray Matter show. So uh, there's a couple million people that may... Can you servers handle it? <laughs> Chris, Chris tells me... 500,000. This is the most he can do. We're hoping we stay. So just keep saying Altion, 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 Altion over and over. Exactly. Hey guys, thanks so much. Matt, thank you very much. Great job. We appreciate your being thank here. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Take care, all.